We're so glad that you're listening to the Branches Podcast. If you're in the Houston area, we'd love to see you in person at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. For more information, go to brancheshtx.org. We hope this message helps you draw closer to God and that you hear the good news that you belong. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Uh, It's good to see all of you here at Branches. If we haven't met before, my name is Colin. I'm the pastor here. And it's just a joy and an honor to be with you, especially during this Lenten season, the 40 days where we make our way to the cross and then ultimately to to Easter Sunday where we celebrate together in this place. And so we're glad that you're here to be part of that journey. As I mentioned at the top of the service, we have these uh, printed books of Mark. uh, That's just Mark on its own. Some margins for you to take some notes and to follow along. I just kind of want to let you know before uh, we dive into the sermon today about some of the other resources we're putting out. So if you go to our website, slash Mark, so brancheshtx.org slash Mark, you can find a daily podcast, uh, which is if if you can't get enough of listening to me, you can listen to me every day of the week until Easter uh, on the daily podcast talking about Mark. Uh, we have some other resources on there. I just posted uh, this week uh, the Bible Worm podcast. It's uh, Bobby Williamson, who's a professor of mine, a Hebrew Bible professor, and his friend Amy, who's a rabbi in the North Georgia area. And they just went through Mark, or they're still currently going through Mark. And so just to hear some other voices uh, go through the Gospel of Mark and the Bible Project. Some people I know know about the Bible Project. They animate these really beautiful kind of overview vid- videos. And so I posted the Mark video on there so you can get kind of an overview of all of its themes. You can get the reading plan in digital form. We have physical ones back there. I just want to let you know that we're really just wanting to uh, give you opportunities to like little bites along the way go through the gospel of Mark because there's a lot going on in there. Last week we talked about Jesus as one who broke the rules for the sake of love. Jesus broke the rules to connect with other people in in the interest of connection, or Carrie will kill me. Please check in uh, in the interest of love. uh, Please check in, and we'd love to connect with you and uh, let us know that you're here today, especially if you're a first-time guest, uh, so we can let you know what's going on in the life of our community. So Jesus uh, was one who broke the rules for the sake of love, that he had this other-oriented love that even though there were these kind of guardrails and ritual laws and religious laws around them, he, he broke the rules so that he could love others, he could heal others, he could give himself for others. And that was kind of a challenge to us last week that like maybe we're pr- presented with an opportunity to care for someone else, but there's an obstacle, there's a rule in the way, and our encouragement, easier said than done though, is to break the rules to love and care for others. And I was reading the story for this week and just thinking like, um, uh, I, I could just preach the same sermon because Jesus again kind of breaks the rules, shatters our expectation, kind of pushes aside the, the ways that people think he ought to conduct himself in the world so that he can care for two vulnerable people that we'll see in the story for this week. But really, today's story is about desperation. We're talking about what it means to be desperate and how Jesus responds to those who are desperate, and then if we want to follow Jesus, how we respond to people in our own lives, or even ourselves or our family, when they are desperate. So with that in mind, let's pray together as we start today. God, we thank you that when we are on our last leg, when we just have a shred left, we just have a little ounce of energy or hope or faith that you complete it for us, that you heal us, that you walk alongside us, you comfort us. And when we mourn us, you don't just comfort us, you mourn with us. And when we're suffering, you don't just look at our suffering and have pity on us, you suffer with us and for us. And then when we're faced with hardship and faced with difficult circumstance, you don't look at it from afar, but you come near to us, nearer to us than we even are to ourselves. 
We're grateful for that. We're grateful for these stories of healing and the way that you continue to heal us in our world and also encourage us and enable us and challenge us to be healers in our world too. We ask all of this in the name of the physician, the healer, our friend, our companion, Jesus the Christ. Amen. I just read at the end of 2023 and the beginning of 2024, probably one of my favorite books now of all time. It's called The Wager. Anybody read it? Uh, really big fan. Uh, the author, David Grant, is a historian, and he also wrote Killers of the Flower Moon, now an Oscar-nominated adaptation of that movie, co-starring Jason Isbell, weirdly, you know, like my world's colliding of movies I like and musicians I like. And uh, The Wager is a really, really neat story about a British naval ship that is taking this long journey from England to Cape Horn. It's the very tip of South America. And they're doing that because they're in pursuit of a Spanish naval ship on which there is said to be a lot of gold and treasure. They're at war, and so they're going to track the ship down, uh, take it over, and take what's on there. But on their journey, uh, across the coast of South America, all the way down near Chile, near Cape Horn, uh, some of the most dangerous waters in the world, they are thrown ashore. Their ship breaks apart, the wager, the, the, the name of the ship is the wager. And they're washed ashore, and then uh, chaos ensues. Uh, the captain, Captain Cheap, was like, not a great name for a captain, doesn't like kind of instill a lot of confidence in his crew. Uh, captain Cheap and his crew find themselves on the beach, and then, as you might imagine, stories you've heard about shipwreck before, factions arise, and people look for ways they can eat and sustain themselves, and they build shelters, and they try to map out their escape, and there's mutiny, and there's murder, and there's mystery, and there's intrigue. And several years later, like five or six years later, two groups of people from the USS Wager make their way back to England, a long journey from the tip of South America all the way to England and they start to publish their accounts of what happened. And as you might imagine, they don't all agree. <laughs> Captain Cheap, of course, is like, they wronged me, there was a mutiny, they deserve punishment to be court-martialed, and then the other groups of people that make it back, they're like, no, he was, he, he was kind of um, uh, not a good captain, uh, he didn't lead us well, and so we had to kind of take the reins, and we were starving, and we had to do what we could, and there were this popular publishing fiesta, really, of stories about the wager. And people who were there, people who weren't there, sensationalized versions, accurate, boring versions, David Grant went through all of it and kind of compiled them together. And one of the, I was in a book club when we read this, and one of the questions we had was, what is the wager about? Like, what is this book about? And you kind of hold it up as a gemstone and look at all of its facets, and one that kind of stood out to me was that it's a story about human desperation. What do we do when we have no other choice? What do we do when we're starving? What do we do when we need to survive? What do we do when we're not in our typical environment and we find ourselves in a place where we don't know where the food is and we don't know where the shelter is and we don't know what the weather is like and we're surrounded by people we're suspicious of and they're suspicious of us? What do we do when we're desperate? It's a tale of human desperation. Desperation, the word desperate, you can kind of hear it in the word, is kind of derived from the same word as despair, meaning without hope. Really is you've been given a choice to say, I have a last ditch effort to kind of solve this or change this. And so a desperate person does things they would never do. 
And so rather than being vulnerable and sharing my own embarrassing stories of desperation, I do what I always do, and I turn to Reddit and looked up stories about other people's desperation <laughs> to make me feel better about my own. Uh, so there's a Reddit thread that is, what have you done when you were really desperate? I have to say, just to preview, if you're going to get on Reddit later and look it up, many of the stories are bathroom related, <laughs> uh, which I read them, I'm like, we've all been there, you know, uh, desperate to find a place to go. Um, but there were some other ones that really stood out to me. Uh, one guy was giving blood and plasma way more than he should because he was financially desperate, but he was like lying about his identity so they wouldn't catch that he was doing it. And he's lucky to be alive, he says. He was desperate financially. Or another guy who was a delivery driver was making deliveries and he locked his delivery truck keys in the truck. And he called his boss. He was like, look, I locked the keys in the truck. I'm not going to make all the deliveries. And he said, no, you have to do what you have to do. There were, it was in a city. There were people all around. And he announced to everyone, this is my truck. Uh, I have to do this. And threw a brick through the window. Uh, desperate. Uh, another man uh, was in a dormitory in college, and he locked himself out of the room, and he knew where the kind of all-purpose general key was in the RA, the resident assistance uh, room was, and it's hanging from a, uh, a hook on the inside of his RA's room, and he knew that his RA always kept his window open, uh, so he took the risk of going outside and jumping into his RA's room, who was luckily not there in a towel, grabbed the key, and ran back. He was desperate in a towel to get back into his own room. Desperation comes from a defeat, large or small, that we find ourselves in a place we didn't think we would be, on the shore of Cape Horn in South America, or in a towel, wet, out of the shower, trying to get into our room, or trying to make deliveries, or trying to make financial ends meet, or trying to reconcile a relationship. When we're desperate, we'll do anything. And that's why we often use the word desperate as an insult. Like a person's behavior makes us think like, oh, they're just desperate. They're desperate for attention or power or influence or whatever else, they're desperate. And I think we turn it into an insult because we think of ourselves or embarrassed of our own desperation, the own, the, uh, the, our own things that we've done when we've been desperate. There's two stories of desperation today. And two people have hitched their wagon to Jesus in their desperation. And that's where we're at today in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. It's a longer story, two stories of desperation. It says this. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live so he went with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She'd endured much under many physicians, spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. And she'd heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Immediately, her hemorrhage stopped. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say, who touched, my, who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. 
go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, and the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why do you make commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Two interlocking stories of desperation. There's a kind of technical term biblical scholars use that Mark does this a lot, intercalation, where he weaves two stories together to make a point about who Jesus is and also a call to our own conduct. Jesus is interrupted in his call to go heal Jairus' daughter, who at first is at the point of death, and then after he's interrupted by the woman with the flow of blood, he finds her having passed away. These two stories are are closely knitted together to tell us something about who Jesus is and, and then likewise what we should do in response, what we should do in the face of desperate people, and for us, what does Jesus do in the face of our desperation? We hear that Jairus is the leader in a synagogue. Um, there's no confusion here. He wasn't a rabbi. He wasn't one of the religious authorities of the time. He was something, if we want to like map our own experience onto Jairus, was like a lay leader in a church. Uh, was probably well-known, probably likely materially wealthy. People knew who he was. He was kind of a hometown hero type of person. People probably knew who Jairus was. And it's actually kind of risk of reputation for him to go to Jesus. People likely saw him and said, what is he doing here? And why is he asking Jesus for help? Isn't he important? Isn't he one of influence? Doesn't he have the power to do something? Couldn't he call someone else? Why is he coming after this homeless, itinerant Jewish rabbi to heal his daughter who's at the point of death? Then Jesus agrees that he's gonna go along and help Jairus and heal his daughter. Jairus has come in desperation on behalf of another, which we'll get to in a minute. But in that kind of movement toward Jairus' house, this crowd presses in on Jesus. We see this over and over again. If you've been reading along in Mark, uh, Jesus has a variety of responses to this. He runs away and hides to go to the secret place. He goes out in a boat to get away from the crowd. And here it seems as if he's just like, pressing through the crowd. Uh, I went to the zoo yesterday, and I think everyone else was there too. Uh, Were you there? It seemed like you were. I think I saw um, every stroller in the city of Houston. Uh, I was like, this is probably what it was like. (laughs) Uh, Just people pressed in, like, we have to see the gorillas, and we have to go into the Galapagos Island thing, and we gotta go push through here. Uh, I feel like that's probably what it was like. We've been in those situations. It's it's icky, um, it's kind of hot and sweaty, and there's just people everywhere, and you can't make out one from another. Jesus is in that situation. He's being pressed on in the crowd. And so it adds kind of a, a new facet of this story that Jesus, again, didn't even notice her, and she didn't want to be noticed. 
She had this idea that if she approached Jesus, kind of, she could just touch and run. Like there's this common kind of superstitious belief that these faith healers are these spiritual, powerful, divine people. Even if you just got near them, they could heal you. Listen to the, the kind of laundry list of desperate circumstances this woman is in. There's a woman who'd been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. Her disease is as old as Jairus's daughter. She'd endured much under many physicians. So there's like this had, she had had this happen to her. She'd seen all the doctors, all the people that said they could help her, had spent all that she had, so she was poor. She was no better, but rather grew worse. She wasn't even marginally better. She got worse and worse and worse over the 12 years. And she had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. It's helpful to know here that this woman would have been seen as impure, unworthy, not even seen as those things, totally unseen, marginalized, out of place, uh, in the crowd somewhere, but not like Jairus, and really not even like Jairus's daughter, a nobody, comes up while Jesus is on the way to heal the daughter of a somebody. And Jesus experiences in some way her touching his cloak, that he feels some power has gone out of him, and he stops, and he lets himself be interrupted, and he says, who touched me? Who touched my clothes? And his disciples are like, bro, we're at the zoo. <laughs> we're all touching you. <laughs> Everybody's around. But her touch was a touch, a grasping, a longing, a wanting of something. And he sees her, and she's embarrassed, and she grovels, and she bends down, and he calls her daughter. Your faith, again, we've already, we've already seen a story like this in, in the New Testament, in, in Mark's gospel, in fact, that Jesus identifies faith as this persen- persistent, longing, grasping, hoping, last-ditch effort for something good to happen, and he identifies that in her. Jairus, all the way, probably standing there very antsy, like, come on, Jesus, <laughs> remember my daughter, she's not well, let's go, she's nobody, and he heals her. Rather, he says, your faith has healed you. She wanted anonymity. She wanted to kind of remain in her state of of not being seen, of not being valued. She just wanted to touch and run. And Jesus breaks all that and says, look, daughter, your faith, this persistence, this 12-year journey you've had has healed you. Two stories of desperation. First, I think the question we have to answer is, how does Jesus respond to people who are desperate. First, we just, we just saw. He notices it. He doesn't smooth it over. He doesn't say like, um, have you tried praying harder? <laughs> have you seen, I, I, you said you saw all the doctors. You were seeing all the doctors? Let me, like, here's his card. This is my friend. Go see this one. He doesn't say, oh, it'll get better or just have hope or whatever else. He notices her. He sees her. He acknowledges her faith and persistence, and she's healed. Then Jesus does make his way to Jairus' house, and he's mocked because he says, what's the big deal? Don't fear. Don't be afraid. He says that a lot. Uh, Never sounds too great to me. It seems kind of like a platitude. But he says, don't be afraid, and then goes on to say, she's only sleeping. Well, she's not actually sleeping. She has passed away. But it tells us something about the ease with which Jesus is able to raise her from the dead. It's, it's no small thing, but for him, it's an easy thing. 
Jesus responds to Jairus' desperation, and even though he lollygags along the way, he makes it, and though she was near the point of death, he's able, able to raise her from actually being in death. The greatest enemy, the greatest obstacle, the greatest thing in the way of someone having a life even beyond a 12-year disease like the woman who was hemorrhaging had, he's able to end it. And I'm always puzzled by, and honestly have nothing uh, profound or deep to say about it, but Jesus, even in the midst of that, having raised her from the dead, is concerned whether or not she's hungry. <laughs> she's awake now. Get her something to eat. He resists fear, and he gives her this gentle wake-up, talitha kum, this kind of Aramaic phrase. And I, I heard this week, and it was really moving for me. We just, it, it's translated in the NRSV, which we read today, as little girl, get up. But it's gentler and warmer than that. The word talitha is not just the descriptive word of a small girl. It's actually kind of a diminutive, like a, a way a mother would talk to a daughter. I saw someone say this week, it's hard for Southern people because we can use this disparagingly or condescending, but it could be honey, sweetheart, get up. And it has physical spatiality to it. Like as you would your own child, like it's time to get up. The sun is up. Talitha, honey, sweetheart, you're awake, get up. He gently wakes her up. He's interrupted by this diseased outcast, doubly outcast woman, and then he finds himself gently waking up Jairus' daughter. How do we respond to desperation? Our own desperation, the desperation of others, the desperation we see in our city. I think Jesus models just what we should do. One is particularly hard for me. If I'm in the zone, if I'm like really doing something, I hate being interrupted. <laughs> Anybody else? I hate when I really have like something really in view and, and someone says like, hey, could you help with this? Jesus is unhurried to maybe the frustration of others, <laughs> unbothered, but moved to act in compassion for this woman who interrupts him. Second, Jesus sees the unseen. He draws his attention in the crowd to a woman who people probably would have written off, maybe have noticed her physically, but not noticed her personally. And he sees her, and she touches him, and he doesn't say, ooh, get away from me. <laughs> he says, your faith has healed you, and calls her daughter. He responds to Jairus' desperation, this is really important, is that he, he responds to Jairus' desperation in which Jairus is desperate on behalf of another, his daughter who cannot advocate for herself. He advocates for her and Jesus raises her from the dead. There's practical implication here. How do we respond to desperation in the world? The world that we live in preys upon people's desperation, sees people in desperate situations and tries to take advantage of them, tries to use their desperation to enrich or help themselves and not to lift up the desperate person and get them out of that situation. We can think of a, a variety of examples from kind of predatory lending practices or people who find themselves in horrible medical distress or financial distress and people see those situations and rather than seeing them as Jesus sees them as an opportunity to lift them up and see their value and their wholeness and their completeness and their belovedness in God's eyes, they say, what's in it for me? What, is, what can I get out of your desperation? 
and then ultimately points back to this. We have the practical implication, how we respond to desperation in the world, but also, what does it say about the character of who God is? If God is present somehow in Jesus Christ, which I believe he is, what does it say about who this God is? This God is powerful, but doesn't use his power overbearingly. He sees someone groveling for him and he calls them daughter and lifts them up. This God in Jesus Christ uh, uh, doesn't uh, sh uh, kind of shy away from an interruption, but embraces it an opportunity. This God has the ease and, and the power enough that it's no thing for him to bring life to a dead thing. This God sees beauty and value in the human person, and that includes you. All that to say, pointing back to the very beginning when we read the story together, is that people in desperate situations hitch their wagon to something. They hitch their wagon, maybe even to desperation itself, like this is just the way it's gonna be. I can't find a place to go to the bathroom, so this is it. <laughs> I, I have to do that. I'm in financial straits. And I'm just gonna, I'm, I, I can't do anything about it. This is it. This is just the way that it's gonna be and I've hitched myself to that. Or in a last ditch effort, they hitch themselves to something that maybe could help. I think the challenge even for myself like spiritually this week is thinking like, is Jesus worth hitching my wagon to? When I'm desperate, do I turn to him or do I turn to someone else or something else? When I'm in a desperate situation, do I, do I give myself to what he taught about uh, peace over war and violence or love over hate? Do I turn myself to that? And when I'm desperate, do I turn myself to Jesus? Do I hitch myself to what he taught or do I hitch myself to my own preference or what I think is most efficient or I think might work or what other people have done and have found success in it? I think it is worthwhile, but it's Sunday, so maybe I'm just kind of starry-eyed right now. <laughs> to hitch ourselves to Jesus. Wherever you are, whatever desperate situation you have found yourself in or might find yourself in the future. I heard Tim Keller put it this way this week. He said, many other worldviews, they, they have you sit in your joy and your good circumstances, anticipating the sorrow and suffering of the future. On the contrary, following Jesus has you in your suffering and sorrow, anticipate inevitable hope. When you're desperate, hold on to that. Thanks be to God for it. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that when we are desperate, you are with us. You're not distant from our desperate situations, but you step into them. And that we believe and we're trying to believe that you ultimately stepped into them in Jesus, became a desperate person, found yourself in a desperate situation, gave yourself desperately for others in him, in his life, in his ministry, and ultimately in the cross and new life. In our desperation, wherever we are in this moment, however long we've been waiting, tapping our foot, waiting for you impatiently, we long for you and wait for you still. Some of us are really longing in this moment to say, God, I've been waiting too long. Where are you? Hear us when we say that. Remind us of your presence and come quickly to save us and deliver us from it, wherever we are. We thank you for this community. We can lean on one another in our desperation. We thank you for this place that hopefully can be a place people can hitch their wagons to and find you in it. God, be with us in our desperation. 
as we open ourselves, we come to this table, as we lift up our voices together, meet us in that. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.